Good evening. You all may be sitting here going, not this guy again. It's like we've had him two Sunday nights in a row. I promise you I won't be giving you a list of uh, dozens of Lads the Leaders events for a second time. But I do want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up for Lads the Leaders yet in the back nursery there for your family, that you guys would look at the events, see what you'd like to be involved with, uh, and support that work that we're starting here. We're excited about that. Silas has been excited all week carrying around our folder and deciding what all he wants to be a part of. So we're, we're having a good time with it at our house and hope that you all will uh, have your families be blessed by it as well. You uh, may be a person with better taste than I am. In fact, let me, let me rephrase that. You're almost certainly a person with better taste than I have. Um, I'm a very uh, picky eater. I've been that way for my whole life. It's a genetic trait, I think, that I've been handed down from my mother. And for a long time, it was pretty much chicken nuggets, macaroni, and mashed potatoes were all that I ate. But, you know, because of that, when you have a bland palate, you end up becoming a fan of McDonald's. Now, again, I hope to say that you don't eat as much McDonald's as uh, I've eaten in the course of my life. But I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and guess what? I eat some McDonald's, right? That's just what happens. But not... I don't just want to talk about McDonald's, though that's fun to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about this picture here on the screen. Does anybody in here remember, and maybe they still do it, I don't, I eat McDonald's, I don't keep up with them necessarily. Does anybody remember the McDonald's Monopoly game that was run for for a long time? I guess maybe they still do it to an extent, but the idea was you go to McDonald's and and you buy a drink or a french fry or whatever, and they give you these little peel-off tickets, right, that that match the Monopoly board game, and depending on which ones you get, you're entered for a chance to win, but some of them that you pull off, you just instantly win maybe a fabulous prize. I think I know one person that won some kind of Xbox game console from one of them. I don't know anybody that's won better than that, but, you know, you can win a, a fabulous prize if you do this, and maybe at some point in the past, you went to McDonald's, and you thought, well, maybe I'll even get that rare Park Place piece, because that piece, in certain years, if you pulled that and ripped it off, as you can see there listed, the prize was $1 million paid out in 5K over the course of 20 years, right? Uh, I would take it. Even though it takes 20 years, that would be just fine with me. Perhaps you sat in McDonald's and decided you were going to do that, but what you may not know is that for a number of years that this game was going on, it was 100% rigged. It was rigged. There was no chance that you would have ever won the $1 million piece. There was no chance that you would have won the, the Viper car There was no chance that you would have won the vacation. It was 100% rigged, provably so. In fact, it was so rigged that the FBI got on the case, and they performed an investigation. They they tied it back to this guy named Jerome Jacobson. He, He went by Uncle Jerry. Okay, that's kind of a good gangster name, I guess, if you want one. And Uncle Jerry, he was involved with uh, the, the production through the advertising branch that McDonald's used to make these game pieces. And through subterfuge, through his position, he actually got a hold of every single major prize-winning piece of that game from the years 1995 through the year 2000. In fact, he even got the attention of Jerry Colombo, who was a member of the Colombo Mafia family in New York, he became involved. Almost everyone that won the major prizes from those years was related to these men in some way. They were all connected. The FBI found it, and once they did, they started going after them. They got all this evidence put together. They actually prosecuted them. This all happened, right? It's kind of a crazy story, and there's a lot more to it than what I'm telling you. But the FBI did this, 
And they took Jerome Jacobson and a lot of his associates to court. Do you want to know the reason why you've never heard about this possibly? I'll tell you the reason why you've never heard about this. The day they took them to court was September 10th, 2001. It's the day that the court case started. September 10th, 2001. And you don't need me to tell you what happened next. The next day rewrote the history books. It changed our perception of the world as it existed forever. We're still, still dealing with the aftershocks of September 11th, 2001. And because of that, what might have been front page news, what might have been the top of the headlines, I mean, it's a pretty amazing story, right? This whole game was rigged. Millions of dollars were embezzled out of this company. And yet it was forgotten to time. What's my point? Sometimes there are events that are so magnificent, so focused on, that other events that happen around them just kind of get thrown to the wayside. We forget about them. They're not talked about as much because the other things seem to take precedent. Well, when we think about the gospel, we have to think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's how the New Testament purports it. That's how Paul would describe it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel preached is that Jesus came and died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that's what the scripture tend to focus on but that's not the only thing that happened in that time frame there's another event that happened that is really rarely talked about we don't give it a lot of focus uh, you may not hear a lot of sermons preached on it but Jesus did die he was crucified and of course he was buried and yes he was resurrected from the dead but we also know that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven after his resurrection earlier brother Bill just read a passage from Luke that talked about that it talked about Jesus' ascension, and tonight for a few minutes, I just want to take a walk through Scripture. This isn't going to be complex. I'm just going to walk you through verses that talk about what the ascension is and ultimately tell us what the ascension means to us. Because if I told you that Jesus Christ died, you probably have a pretty good idea of what that means for your life. If I told you he rose from the dead, I would hope that you know that that means something for your life and for your future. But if I tell you that Jesus Christ ascended back up into heaven you might not have a framework for knowing what that really means for your life. And so just for a few minutes, I want us to walk through and talk about the day that Jesus Christ ascended back to his Father in heaven. The, the total accounts of the ascension, as far as the historical happening of it, are very brief. I, I've put all the verses related to it really up on the screen right here. We have a passage in Luke 24 and then an, a, another verse from Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. It says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's all the Bible says as far as the actual happening historical event. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say about the ascension from the outside perspective. But as far as the actual happening, this is all that we have, and it seems pretty simple, right? It seems like maybe not of that big a deal to worry about. You know, on one hand, we say, well, the Bible talks about Jesus ascending, but you could just think about it like this. Jesus came to earth. He's not here anymore. So what do we know? He had to leave. Just so happens the ascension is how he left. It was just Jesus walking out the door, leaving, and that was that. There's not much more to it than that. Well, 
one way of looking at it, I guess you could take that route, but I think upon further study, we would see that's not how the Bible portrays the event. I wanted to find a quote, and I pulled one from the late brother Wayne Jackson. He said, The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation truth of the gospel. For that reason, occasionally, the resurrection narrative has overshadowed the ascension record, but the ascension event is of equal significance, and careful attention should be given to it. That's a heavy statement from a heavy scholar, but Brother Wayne said the ascension is of equal significance to the resurrection. And that should give us pause. If we haven't thought about the ascension, if we haven't studied it, that should make us go, well, what is, what's going on with this ascension? What, what is this really about? It's a very short group of passages. What am I supposed to learn from this? So tonight, we're really going to divide this into two parts of the sermon, then the lesson will be yours. One are some things you should know about the ascension, some facts about it that we can find from the Bible. And then secondly, I want to talk about what the ascension means for you and me today. First off, what you should know about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, if you said, well, all I need to know is what the Bible says about it, and I just read the two passages that talk about it, so now I know what I should know. But the Bible says a lot more about this event, and not just in hindsight. In fact, if we were going to look at the Bible, we would see that the ascension of Jesus Christ is something that was prophesied about years in advance. Now, we're familiar with Messianic prophecy about where Jesus would be born, about the kind of life that Jesus would live, some of the things he would say, the death that he would die, his resurrection from the dead. Those are all very important events, and the prophets spoke about them years before they took place. But that's not all they spoke about. They also spoke about the fact that Jesus would not only be raised from the dead, but he would actually be raised all the way up into the heavenly throne room. Let's look in the book of Daniel. Daniel 1 through 6 are some of the easiest chapters in the Bible as far as getting a good story out of it. They're great Bible class material. There's lots of fantastical stories about, uh, you know, young men getting thrown into uh, an alien situation and making good decisions uh, about, you know, standing up for God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ronald's favorite story in the Bible. You have Daniel in the lion's den, hands writing on the walls. All very good kind of fun chapters to talk about. Then you get to Daniel 7 through the end of the book, and it is some of the most difficult material in all of the Bible. It's all apocalyptic literature. It's very cryptic. But there are parts of it that still shine through pretty easily for us. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And And Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed... And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, in this context, the Ancient of Days is God, Yahweh, Jehovah. It says, He took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the, head of his, uh, and, uh, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand serve him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is not a questionable scene. We see that this is the throne room of heaven, and the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth is sitting on his throne in judgment of the world. But it's after this in Daniel 7 verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now you and I live in in the year 2023. I think that's the current year. I had to think about it for a second. We live in the year 2023. We've been to church. We've listened to Bible classes. And so when we hear son of man, who's the first person we think about? 
Jesus. We think about Jesus, right? And that's correct. That's who this is referring to. But note that in the prophecy of Daniel, the statement being made is it looks like a human. It looks like a human, a man is being brought into the courtroom of heaven. And it says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. If the story was to stop there, it would be a fascinating, perhaps frightening story for this son of man to come to the very throne room of God. But it continues, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Probably one of the most glorious passages of the Old Testament. When the Son of Man comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days and is given an eternal, everlasting kingdom. But it's not only in the book of Daniel that we read about what seems to be the ascension of Jesus to the throne of God being discussed. One of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, David in the spirit in the Psalms here says, God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. A very cryptic verse. Jesus even brings it up during his ministry. But with the hindsight of Revelation, we realize that this is prophesying that God speaks to his son and says, sit on the throne beside me until I put all things under your feet. And so the Old Testament prophesies the fact that Jesus, the son of man, would ascend, that he would go to the throne and that he would be there even before people knew who Jesus was or would be. But it wasn't just the prophets that talked about this. No, Jesus himself talked about the fact that he would ascend. It's one thing if Jesus just ascended because that was his exit strategy, but it seems that it was on his mind during his earthly ministry. Note in John chapter 6, it says, When many of his disciples heard the sayings that Jesus said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus said, If you're having a hard time with this, you're going to lose your minds when you see me ascend back into heaven. He knew what was going to happen. He already knew everything that lied before him, and he was trying to prepare his disciples and apostles for what was going to happen and of course we know in John 3 as he's talking to Nicodemus he says if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things again in a context of saying if you can't understand this you're never going to understand that and then he says no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man the same language used in the book of Daniel so we see Jesus tying connections back to this ascension prophecy saying, I am he who will ascend back into heaven. But it didn't stop with Jesus because after this, the church preached about the ascension. They didn't drop it. Even though the death, burial, and resurrection take center stage, they continued to talk about the ascension because it's inseparably tied to who Jesus is. In Acts chapter 2, we see in the very first gospel sermon, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. What's he talking about? The ascension 
first gospel sermon includes a reference to the ascension. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, David never did it, but the son of David did. And God has made him both Lord and Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, I've just taken a selection here because it's perhaps one of the longest run-on sentences in the Bible. Paul doesn't give you a good stopping and starting place here. But to give you the context, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The ascension is at the heart of the theology of the New Testament. If you want to go to the epistles and learn what the church is, who we are, our relationship to Jesus, Paul says the ascension is right there in the middle of it. And without the ascension, the book of Hebrews would basically have no leg to stand on. The book is built on the idea of an ascended high priest. And it says in Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In a book that's talking about the fact that you cannot leave Jesus and be saved, you cannot turn back to the law of Moses, you must stand fast. The proof that's given by the Hebrew author is Jesus has ascended. We have no other choice but to rely on him. And so you may say, that's great. We have this picture, Jesus ascending up into the clouds. The Bible talks about it in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks of it. The church speaks of it. But your next question, which should always be the first question with any kind of theology, is what's it to me? Why does it matter? You know, it, it seems like the, the death part or the resurrection part or the baptism part, that seems like the important parts. The ascension just seems like an interesting fact that this is how Jesus left the earth. Well, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about what the ascension means for you and me today because there's some actionable facts that we can know that we benefit from the ascended Son of God. Number one, the ascension of Jesus Christ means that we have a man in our corner. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the King of Kings. He is the creator of the universe, and he is my advocate. He's on my side. It's amazing that so many people have this view of God, that God is sitting on his throne in heaven waiting to zap us at the first opportunity, that God just is thrilled to send millions of people to hell. It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God that we read about in the Bible. And what we read in the Bible is that God has provided an advocate and an intercessor for us in Jesus Christ. Because, you see, Jesus didn't just rise up to the throne of God so he could sit down and rest on his laurels for a minute. He rose there to do work on our behalf. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33, "...who shall bring any charge against God's elect?" It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
when I think about the fact that Jesus Christ on the throne room of heaven would even speak the name Titus Anderson into the ear of the everlasting God on my behalf and intercede for me, for my sins, for my salvation, I just almost don't know what to do with that. I can't comprehend it. I can't understand it. I can't thank God enough for it. But the Bible teaches it that Jesus rose and ascended for my benefit so that he could intercede on my behalf and be the man sitting in the corner for me. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then in 9 verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus died for you, and he rose for you, and he ascended for you and for me, selfless in all things, even now in the very throne room of God, he is on our side and working for our salvation. And that is a huge blessing of the ascension of Jesus Christ. But beyond that, we also have to think about the thought of a head in the clouds when we think about the ascension. Now, if I said, you've got your head in the clouds, you know what the implication of that is. You're kind of flighty, maybe you're daydreaming a lot. You're not paying attention. That's not what I'm talking about when I say a head in the clouds. I'm talking about a head in the heavenly places. Of course, the New Testament teaches in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. Colossians goes on to list all of these things that he is, that he's preeminent in all things. But there it says that he is the head of the church. Now, of course, we know that that means that Jesus is the leader of the church. He's the authority figure in the church. We do all that we do through the, the, the authority and the teachings of Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that sounds like it should be future tense. One day God will raise us up and put us in the heavenly places. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says because the head of the church is already in the heavenly places, it's as if the body occupies that place too. The implications for that are, are multiple and various, and again, go beyond the comprehension. But one thing I think about this is that the church literally spans the, the distance from earth to heaven. There's no separation. This morning when we sang holy, 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 just as it sung in the throne room of God, it was like we were there. That should scare us a little bit, but it should also make us very thankful we are seated in the heavenly places because our head sits on the throne of god and so again when you see this picture you might think that that's a little bit of a joke but i want you to imagine the church is the body and the head is jesus it's in the heavenly places and we enjoy the blessings and benefits of him being there each and every day he's our intercessor and he is the head of the body that puts us in to the heavenly places the ascension means that we have a very present help. 
And it seems antithetical because the ascension, in one way of thinking about it, would be the fact that Jesus left us. Jesus left the earth. The ascension means that he went away. And we say, well, what does that mean then that Jesus is a very present help? We know that God is everywhere. This is kind of maybe a little bit of a heretical drawing, right? There's a picture of, of supposed to be God looking at a board, and this is kind of God's map of the universe, right? Like when you go to the mall or to a theme park and it says, you're here, you're here, you're here. God's omnipresent. God is in all places. We understand that. We learn that from an early age. And yet at the same time, Jesus was on the earth, and then he left. He, he seemed to go away from us. Jesus told us in, in Matthew 28, he came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he gave them that great commission. And at the end of it, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus said this, and then what did he do? He left. He ascended back into heaven. But we have to understand what that really means. Because you see, when Jesus was on the earth in his human nature, how many places could he be in? He would be in one place. He was with his disciples. He was in a boat. He was on the cross. He was in a tomb. As long as Jesus remained on the earth, he could only be in one place at once. But because Jesus ascended to the room of the omnipresent God, now where is he? He's everywhere. The ascension was not Jesus leaving us. It was him being with every single one of us. That's why he ascended. So he could be with you and me, even though he was no longer here in his bodily form. Now he could be with us at all times. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's because Jesus ascended so that he could be with us always, even to the end of the age. It's one of the greatest blessings we have, knowing that the presence of God and his Son is always with us. The ascension of Jesus Christ is fitting because we must remember that Jesus Christ is a king. And a king needs to sit on the throne. A few months ago on May the 6th, the coronation of King Charles pulled the viewership of, I want to say it was almost 20 million people worldwide that watched Charles be coronated. Of course, in the aftermath of the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. And it became an interesting thing because it had been so long that since something like this had happened. It's very intriguing, all these rituals and, and the crown and all of the pomp and circumstance. And people watch with fascination. It, it, it draws our attention because there's something almost higher than the everyday life going on here. There's some mystique around the throne and the dynasty. But when we look at this picture and see King Charles, we must remember that there is no king greater than King Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the greatest king that has ever graced human history. And the ascension proves it in full. If we were going to go back to the book of Daniel again, we bring back this quote to see the vision that he had of that Son of Man going, but specifically that he didn't just go to be in heaven. He didn't just go to the throne to see his Father. He went to be given a kingdom. Jesus, when he ascended... All authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. And that kingdom that he was given then will be his forevermore. 
He is our king. He is the one that we follow. And we do what he tells us to do now. Because we know that one day, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." It is good and right that on the day of judgment, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. We should look forward to that day of vindication. He is the perfect man. He was scorned and murdered on a shameful cross. And it's right and fitting that the king one day will get the respect that he deserves. All will do it then, but we choose to do it now. We respect him now. We follow his authority now because we love him and we are his friends. And we've been given a good king and we should thank God that he has ascended to that throne in the heavenly throne room. There's so much that I want to go into tonight and we're out of time and I haven't touched on the role of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus' ascension dealt with that. I don't have time to talk about the fact that in Jesus, a man ascending to the throne, that mankind finally fulfilled that dominion mandate that God said that all things would be put under man's feet. We just don't have time to talk about it. And so I want to close with this. The ascension reminds us of a fearsome promise. If we looked at that account in Acts chapter 1, it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, because, of course, what would we be doing? If we saw Jesus go up into heaven, we'd be standing looking up just like this, right? Where'd he go? I can't see him anymore. As they stood looking up, behold, two men stood beside them in white apparel. You have to imagine this was kind of like a jump scare, right? They look over and suddenly there's these two guys standing who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The ascension is a promise that he who ascended will once more descend. He's coming back. He's coming back in the same manner in which he went up. And the book of Revelation gives us, I think, a a perfectly worded picture of this. It says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear the love of that? This Jesus who loved us, who's done this for us, who has seated us in power with God, to him be glory and dominion forever. But note the next part. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him even they who pierced him. And you can read a lot of books and won't find something that profound. Every eye, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. That is going to be a terrible day for the majority of the human population of the history of the world. It will be a terrifying day. It will be a day that causes these eyes to tremble and mourn because of the coming of Jesus. But you know that even so there, we often sing the song, uh, It is well with my soul. And in the very last verse, you will note in quotations, right before the chorus, it says, Even so, quotes, it is well with my soul. And that's the message of this passage of Revelation because we are not those who mourn at the coming of Jesus. We are those who are loved by him, 
who are covered in his blood, who have been made kings and priests to, to our God. And we're excited for that day, or else we should be. Because to me, the final question of the ascension is the one that we have to come back to. Are you ready for Jesus to come back as he went? You all are like me, I think. I think we're alike in some ways. And we've all listened to Brother John say what he says so gracefully at the end of his sermons a lot of times. He says, today would be a great day for Jesus to come back, and I hope he does. And I know what happens to you like it happens to me. You clench up a little bit. You go, oh no, God listens to him. I'm afraid of that, right? That maybe, maybe this is what's going to happen. Because you're thinking, well, I, wanna, I was planning on going to Cracker Barrel after service this morning. Or I was planning on building my house this coming spring. Or I'm looking forward to my kid graduating this year. I want to see them get married off. I want to live my life. And sometimes we're just not as excited and ready for that day to come as we should be. But if we look at the entirety of Scripture and the revelation of God, we see that God only does good things. And all of those good things that we're looking forward to, that we want to see, they pale in comparison to what God has in store for us. And the glory that he gave to his son when he ascended to that throne is the glory that he wants to shower each and every one of us with for all of eternity. When you think about it in those terms, I think the answer to are you ready should be, yes, I am. I, I, I want that to happen. I want Jesus to come back so that you can say amen when we say I hope he comes back today. But if you're not ready, then you need to make that right. If you're not a Christian, you have no hope of that glory, sharing in the glory and the inheritance of the Son of God. You need to be baptized into Christ so that you'll have a head in the throne room of heaven, so that you'll have an advocate that has the ear of the judge and creator of the world. Most of us here tonight are Christians. We've been baptized into the church, and sometimes it takes studying something like this that we haven't thought about to wake us up, to make us realize that I've got to change my priorities. I've got to start focusing on that which is important.